Today's scripture is from James 2, 1 through 13. Please stand for the reading of God's word. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are not they the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks. When we decided to preach through the book of James, I knew there was going to be a stretch in which the weightiness of this book was going to bear down on us as a people in some uncomfortable ways. And that stretch started somewhat last week, and the text we come to today, the weight starts to come down on us fully. The, the passage we're looking at, it was sparked by a controversy around seating arrangements in the church. And on the surface, it might not seem like that big of a deal. But underneath, what James is addressing here is one of the most fundamental problems in the world, relationally, societally, and in the church. And we all know that, that on the surface where you sit might not seem like that big of a deal. I mean, we don't have seating arrangements here, basically, unless you show up late, then you might not get a seat some Sundays. But it's not like certain people get to sit certain places. But we do know that where you sit can say a lot about who you are. Where you sit can say a lot about who you know where you stand in certain circles, where you stand in society. I don't know about anyone else, but for me, when I was in sixth grade, I moved to a new school district and kind of moved to a whole new city, didn't know a person there. And I was kind of looking forward to meeting new people and uh, you know, exploring new parts of the world. And my first day of school, it wasn't all that bad until lunchtime came around. Can I remember that feeling of walking into the lunchroom and not knowing where you're going to sit. And I was always a buyer. You know, there was always buyers and bringers. And it always seemed like the bringers were the upper class and the buyers were the lower class. I think it'd be flipped, but uh, 
I remember getting that tray, you know, getting the food. And then you stand there and you just look. It's like, where do I sit? Who do I sit with? Maybe some of the students in the room, you can relate to that, you know, very acutely because of the season of life you're in. And I'd love to tell you that that only happens in middle school and high school. And after that, that never happens again. But, but that stuff still goes on. I remember about 10 years ago, uh, I was at a pastor's conference and I got invited to this dinner with, I don't want to say they're famous pastors because I think that's an oxymoron, but they were like influential pastors. And I couldn't believe I got invited. And it was like set up as kind of this square so everyone could look at each other. And I show up like a Surprised I got invited to this thing and I went to go sit down. You know, someone's like, oh, sorry, this seat's reserved. I was like, oh, okay. I went to sit over here. Sorry, sorry, someone else is sitting here. And I kind of made my way around the table and I was like Forrest Gump on the bus. You remember that? It's like people are sliding over, can't sit here, seat's taken. And so eventually I went and sat by myself uh, at a different table. And, you know, my wife, she says that when she sees people sitting by themselves eating, it's like, makes her really, really sad. I'm an introvert. And so it bothered me a little that there wasn't, but there's also a part of me that I love eating by myself, you know, like makes her sad and makes me glad. It's, it's kind of number two on my list right behind seeing movies by myself. Uh, I'm one of those guys that I'm just fine to be by myself. But there was a sense there of like, hey, someone invited you, but there's not a seat for you. Like where you sit says something about where you belong and we see this in the world. I mean, that's why all of us know Rosa Parks' name, right? She sat somewhere, society said she wasn't supposed to sit. And even though that was decades ago, we still, where you sit says something. Are you sitting in the box seats or the cheap seats? Do you have tickets for the lawn? Do you have VIP tickets? Maybe the, the most obvious is when you get on an airplane. Are you in first class? Which seems lovely. I've heard great things. <laughs> Are you in economy? I mean, I remember a few years ago, taking an international flight, we get on and they make you, it's like they rub your nose in it. They can't let you get on from the back of the plane. You have to walk through first class. And I swear these people are sitting on sofas, getting massages, drinking champagne, eating caviar and prosciutto and all these things. I go back to my seat and there's two large men and I'm already a large man and I got to sit in between them. And I kid you not, as the plane's getting ready to take off, the guy next to me pulls out this leather case, unzips it and pulls out a syringe. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Is this like a horror movie? Like what's happening to me? And he, he injected himself with whatever it was. And I thought this is a perfect example. You know, this is what you get in economy versus the massages in first class. But that situation notwithstanding, for the most part, we don't get mad when someone's sitting in first class because we know that they paid two or three times the the price that we did to sit in economy. We don't get mad when people drop three or four times the amount of money to get front row seats while we're sitting near the back. In the world, that's just normal. It's how our world operates. But what was happening in that day is that thinking and pattern of the world had infected the church. The wealthy and the powerful were getting VIP treatment and the poor were being relegated to the back of the church or to the floor. And James says that not only is this practice wrong, he actually says in verse four, it's evil. So it's not just this is impolite or improper, 
or wrong or sinful. He says it's evil. And the argument he's making in this text is to treat people differently on the basis of their wealth and beyond is antithetical to the gospel. It's antithetical to what James calls true religion. Because James, he's not just a theologian, he's a pastor. And this is one of the things that makes his book so different. He doesn't get into the trenches and all the details about theology and salvation. James is intensely practical. And his passion is, is the church filled with people who have actually met the risen Savior? Is the church filled with people who are hearers of the words or are they also doers of the word? Because there's a big difference between knowing some Bible passages or understanding some theology and actually living as a blood-bought child and servant of God. It says, what's going on in the church? There's a lot of people who claim the name of Jesus, but their lives have not been conformed to the pattern of Jesus. And one of the, he gives a number of tests and one of the un undeniable test of true religion is how you treat people who are different from you, especially those that you view as beneath you or those that society says are beneath you. James says, you actually want to know if you know Jesus, look at how you treat people that you consider beneath you. I have to say, this has been one of the most challenging, convicting texts that I've sat with in a long time, personally. It's also challenging because it speaks to some of the most pressing hot-button issues in the world, but also in the church today. And at times, this text is absolutely piercing. And that, I submit to you, if you are willing to hear what James is saying, it will pierce you in some profound ways. But whenever you come to texts like this, weighty texts like this, I think there are a number of postures that we're tempted to take that aren't helpful. And so before we get in, I just want to speak to that. For some of you, you're going to hear what James is saying here, and you're going to be tempted to take a, a dismissive posture. It's like, well, this doesn't apply to us. It doesn't apply to me. It doesn't apply to our culture. That's something back then. You want to write it off. Others will be tempted to take a defensive posture. It's like, well, that's not true about it. It might apply, but I'm not guilty of that in any way. I've never been guilty of any of those things. And then some of you, you're going to actually really feel to pierce the, the weight of the, the passage and the, the posture you'll be tempted to take is just to be defeated. You ever left a sermon just absolute, like I am a miserable wretch and you're a heaping pile of burning ashes. That's not helpful either. And so I wanna call us away from being dismissive, defensive, uh, or defeated and instead call us to, let's say, grace-fueled curiosity. And what I mean is, as we hear this passage, I pray that we're a people who, because we know we're saved by grace and grace alone, and we know that grace means that we're not saved by our good deeds and we're not damned by our bad deeds, that we could come to this text with a curiosity and say, how might this be working, this principle be working in my life? Where might this be true in our church? Knowing that we're safe because our salvation is dependent upon the finished work of Jesus and not how good we obey the rules. So that's my prayer. And I really pray we do that because growth, real spiritual growth is always predicated upon honesty. And to get to that place, you need curiosity. You need to be able to willing to ask, where might I need to grow? What blind spots might I have? That sound fair? You guys with me? So we're gonna look at this text, break it down into three parts. 
In this text, James gives us the what, the why, and the how. The what, he gives us a vision for the kind of community that we should be. He gives us the reasons why we must be that kind of community. And then he gives us some direction on how we can become that kind of community. So the vision, the reasons, and then the way forward. And the vision is really quite simply, James is saying is that the church, the community of God's people, must be a community that's marked by justice, mercy, love, and equality. The church must be a place where everyone is honored, no one's dishonored on the basis of externals. It must be a place of deep unity amidst great diversity. That's the vision he holds forth. That people from every tribe, tongue, nation, every class, all kinds of diversity, but people are treated with dignity, honor, and equality. Now, he, he paints this picture by way of contrast. He paints this picture by giving us a prohibition in verse one. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Show no partiality. And then he tells the story of the rich man and the poor man. And he says, if you make the poor man sit, sit on the floor or sit in the back, you're showing partiality. But what I want you to see is that's, that's a very clear example, but that's just a fraction of what he's talking about. Like there's a principle underneath that example. And so don't show partiality on the basis of wealth, but it goes much beyond that because the phrase even in verse one, show no partiality, the hyper-literal translation of that is James is saying to the people of God, don't receive a face. That's how you'd actually translate, uh, do not show partiality. And what he means is don't receive people, welcome people in on the basis of how they look, on the basis of external appearances. And don't exclude people on the basis of how they look or external appearances. And so the external appearances could be someone's wealth that you would make that distinction of who you're gonna move toward and who you're gonna move away from, but it goes way beyond wealth. What James is calling out here is making evaluations or judgments of people on the basis of any external thing. Could be their education, could be their profession, could be their connections, like who do they know, their usefulness to you, could be their abilities or lack thereof, could be their age, their attractiveness, their weight, their nationality, the language they speak, the color of their skin. James is saying, in the community of God's people, there must be no partiality, favoritism, or discrimination of any kind, period. We must not move towards certain people and away from other people because of external things. To put it another way, we must not give or withhold love, hospitality, friendship, mercy, kindness, or service to people on the basis of external appearances or life circumstances. We must not look at people who've gone through divorce or people who are divorced and treat them differently. We must not look at single moms and treat them differently. We must not look at CEOs or wealthy, influential people and treat them differently in just a different way. 
And I want you to feel the weight of this. Because I think we're all guilty of this. And I think we've all been trained from a very young age, taught and trained from a very young age, that like this is how the world works. I mean, one of the mantras my dad beating in my head as I'm five years old and he's saying, son, it's not what you know, it's who you know. I mean, there's something about the, the nature of fallen humanity that we like to run with people that look like us or kind of at the same level as us or maybe a little better than us, right? That's just, that's just what we do. It's the tribalism endemic to fallen humanity. We, without even thinking about it, without doing it consciously, we can walk into a room and classify and stratify people make snap judgments. And James is saying that might be the way the world works, but that's not the way God's people work. And then he presses in and he's saying, this isn't a minor sin. Because I think one thing we can do is kind of, well, I'm not super guilty of that. We're all guilty. The other thing is to say, well, it's not that big of a deal. Everyone does it, you know, so it's not that big of a deal. It's not like I committed adultery or murdered someone. (laughs) And then James says, verse nine, If you show partiality, favoritism, if you discriminate against anyone on the basis of externals, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. Now, the implication here is clear. If you do not commit adultery and do not murder, but you show partiality, you too are a transgressor of the law. I mean, James is fierce in writing this, and I think part of the reason why is because it's personal for him. You know, James was Jesus's half-brother. His parents were dirt poor. His brother was a homeless man, and he's looking at these churches that he's overseeing that's putting all of the poor people in the back and on the floor. And he's saying something has gone terribly wrong in the church when Jesus, Mary, and Joseph would show up and there wouldn't even be a seat for them. Like we have missed something to treat and stratify people based on these external things. And to do so, to show partiality, it undermines the community of love, unity, equality that Jesus sealed for us by his blood because the sin of partiality, it always favors the wealthy, the strong, the powerful, and the attractive, and it always bears down negatively on the poor, the disadvantaged, the marginalized, and the minority classes. And the reason why is the fallen human tendency to move towards those like us and those we perceive as better than us. That's the way we want to go. In our minds, there's a ladder, a social ladder, and everyone goes only one way. Human history, personal experience says, apart from the radical grace of God, people don't tend to go down the ladder on purpose. We all want to move up. We all want to be around people that are like us, or better than us, wealthier than us, smarter than us, more successful than us, more influential than us. And when, when that happens in the church and we gravitate towards, gravitate towards those people, we, without even recognizing we're doing it, we're continuing to push down and to oppress the underrepresented 
and the underprivileged. We become complicit without even recognizing it because through our partiality, through our just flocking to those people and avoiding the others, like we're maintaining the status quo. And the status quo is what has led to that situation up to that point. I want to be clear. I think that I don't think that this is conscious on our part. Often. I think a lot of times you might think you're doing good. We don't know, but I think part of me wonders if the people in the churches that James are writing to, they're like, hey, we're doing a good thing. These smelly, poor people who have nothing, we're still letting them in. We're even ushering them. We just don't want them to be up front because no one wants to look at poor, smelly people. We'll put them in the back. I think in the same way, this partiality that exists in our hearts, we, we often don't even know it's there and we're not even intentional. I mean, I don't know a whole lot of believers who are actively or deliberately seeking to keep the poor, the elderly, the disadvantaged, the minorities in our midst on the fringes, but it happens nonetheless. And as a result, people remain marginalized, disempowered. They suffer dishonor and shame. And the community that Jesus bought by his blood is fractured. You guys with me on this? Without, without actively confronting of it, the status quo remains. So think about our church. You know, I, I came, the first church I planted is kind of the opposite of this church in a lot of ways, but it was very, very poor. This church is pretty darn affluent. You can see that when you drive through our parking lot. Now imagine if you drive kind of, a, you know, a beat up car that's 15, 20 years old and you pull, pull into our parking lot. What's being communicated there? And I don't want you to feel bad for having nice vehicles. I'm just saying that the assumption before someone even walks in the door is I don't think I belong here. And if we as a community are not actively saying that's absolutely not true, and you're, you're worth the same as everyone else here by the grace of God and there's a seat for you, if we're not actively confronting that, then we're just perpetuating the system. They're gonna leave this church and go somewhere else. I'm gonna give you one more example of this from the scriptures because this is challenging. In Acts 6, we're told of a conflict in the early church between the Greek-speaking believers and the Hebrew-speaking believers. And this wasn't just a matter of language, it was a matter of culture. People cut from a different cloth, pretty much a different race. And the Hebrew-speaking believers, they were the ones with power and influence. They were the ones who were in control. The Greek-speaking believers, they were the minorities in the midst now, in the early church, there was this offering that was taken up regularly to care for widows. And the Greek-speaking believers were looking at how widows were being treated, and they said, you know what? Our widows are being treated unfairly compared to how the Hebrew widows are being treated. And so they lodged a complaint with the apostles. And the apostles, they... They didn't write off the complaint. They didn't say, why are you complaining? The apostles listened. And in fact, they appointed a new class of leader in the church to oversee the care of widows, deacons. Now, what's fascinating, some of you know that story. What's fascinating, what, what I'm guessing most of you don't know, is that the leaders that they appointed, that the people in power appointed, they were Greek-speaking believers. They were the minorities, in the room. All of them had Greek names. 
See, the apostles knew that favoritism was a real threat to the health of the church and the flourishing of the people and the unity of the people. They knew the status quo would perpetuate ongoing mistreatment and marginalization if not confronted. So they took action to disrupt the status quo, to root out the sin of partiality and favoritism from their midst by empowering a disempowered group to make sure all were treated equitably. This was affirmative action before affirmative action was in place. This was the church saying, if we're not careful, if we just continue as is, then we're going to continue to hold down and hurt people who don't have as much power or influence for whatever reasons we do. So this is the vision James is holding before us. We we must be a people who actively and deliberately seek to root out all forms of partiality from our hearts and our midst by whatever means necessary so as to preserve the unity Jesus secured for us on the cross and to strengthen our community as a place of love, honor, and equality and fully empower every member of the body because every member is gifted to live into their gifts and to play their part well in the church. That's the vision. James, he doesn't just tell us what we should be, who we should be. He also tells us why. He gets to the heart of why is favoritism and partiality so wrong? Why is racism or classism or sexism so poisonous? And I really want to press in here because I've noticed when issues like these come up in the church, people you know, they get defensive or dismissive or they'll say things like, don't bring politics into the church. Sometimes people will send me an email saying, if you don't speak about, like I'll preach a sermon addressing these issues. And then they like hold me hostage on becoming a member. I won't become a member unless you say this next week. And I'm like, goodbye. But we do that. Like this is politics. We shouldn't be talking politics. <laughs> Sometimes our pastors, we get accused not just of talking politics. Some of our pastors have been accused in teaching this stuff of being communist or social Marxist. And what I want you to see is we're none of that. We're just Bible teachers. And treating people as equal in dignity and worth, that's not some political move. It's just, that's our job. Our job is to open the Bible and tell you what it says. And I I know our culture is so politically charged that for many of you here, Instead of seeing all things through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his word, you see things through the lens of your politics. And so you're always trying to, cat- all right, is that a liberal thing or a Republican thing? Conservative? Instead of saying, is that a Jesus thing or is that a Satan thing? Man, what's so sad to me is I look at the world and the world's more concerned about issues of human dignity and human equality than the churches. And the great irony there is that the secular world has no basis to argue for human dignity and equality because the secular world believes that we are all accidents and the only way we got to the place we got to is because the strong ate the weak. And so the secular world, they should be the ones saying, no, no, the powerful, let them become more powerful. It will empower the human race. But no, they're passionate about equality. You know why? You can't say, well, because that's just natural. It's hardwired into us. It might be a little bit, but throughout a lot of human history, people didn't believe that everyone was equal. Aristotle, one of the smartest men of his day, smarter than most of us, 
He said, you can look at some people and know that they were born to be slaves. But obviously people were created for different social classes. You know where the idea of human rights, basic human rights, inalienable human rights came from? Historians, even non-Christian historians will tell you. It came from jurists in the Middle Ages, studying the Bible, looking at what it had to say and saying, okay, how does this inform our laws? All people are equal, whether they're landowners or not landowners, color of their skin. That teaching came from the scriptures. It didn't come from the world. And yet oftentimes the churches are silent on these matters in the world screaming and we actually have the basis for it. And so I'm gonna lay for you four reasons why partiality, discrimination, favoritism is wrong from the scriptures, from James. Number one, partiality dishonors the image of God and every created person, every person God created. Verse six, James says, if you treat the poor man differently based upon his appearance, you make him stand in the back or sit on the floor. James just doesn't say you've sinned or it's evil. Look at the word he says, you have dishonored. You have dishonored the poor man. You've undervalued the poor man. You haven't shown the proper respect because James knew what the Bible teaches that all people are created in the image of God. Chapter three, he brings this up again. And he's speaking about gossip and slander. And he says, with the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. I can't go into too much depth here. To sum it up, all people have been created in the image of God and there is a sacred dignity about everyone. All people are infinitely valuable regardless of their appearances or circumstances. And if you treat people differently on the basis of appearances, if you say some are more worthy than others, you're trying to take the seat of God. God created them all and said they have infinite worth. So to treat people differently based upon their appearances, you're denying the mago Dei in them. Partiality dishonors the image of God. Number two, it defies the law of God. God's word is very clear on this matter. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. It's one example, Leviticus 19, 15. There's plenty of them in the scriptures. And I want you to see, he said, don't show partiality to the rich, but also don't show partiality to the poor. You know, that's part of the way our world works is it's, let's take the pendulum over here and then we're gonna take the pendulum back over here. No, no, we need to show favoritism here and here. Scripture says, no, you don't show partiality. Maybe the clearest place this is taught that James alludes to in verse eight is the royal law of love that Jesus gave. James says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Let me ask you, do you want people to judge you based upon your appearance? You want people to classify and stratify you by the clothes you wear, the color of your skin, or or how old you are? There's all kinds of discrimination. Age discrimination in the church is actually, it's kind of a big thing for a while, and it, it still is in many ways. You know, a decade ago, there were a lot of churches that had a mantra, no age from the stage. You have gray hair, unless it's really long like Eddie's. Uh, you're not allowed on the stage because we want to reach young people. There are plenty of other churches that said, unless you have gray hair, there's not a place for you here. You want to have influence? You want to have a voice? You want to lead something? 
we'll just be a member for 20 or 30 years and then we can talk about it. Is that how you want to be treated? You want people to look at the car you drive and put you in a box? No. Show partiality defies the law of God. Number three, so not only does it dishonor the image of God and defy the law of God, it disregards the heart of God. Because the law of God, it's not just a code of ethics, although it is. The law of God is the direction and instruction from our creator. And the law tells us something about who God is. God doesn't command something that is inconsistent with his nature. And so God says, do not show partiality. Why? Because God doesn't show partiality. Deuteronomy 10, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of gods, the great God, mighty and awesome. What an intro for who God is. What's the next thing we're told about this God? He shows no partiality, accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. And he loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. God is not wooed by powerful people. (laughs) He's not wooed by fancy cars or fancy houses or well-connected people. God's actually more wooed, it seems, by the fatherless and the widow and the foreigner residing among you. Like his heart moves in that direction. And so to show partiality, to discriminate against people is to go against the very heart of God. This is where we get to the issue of true religion. Do we share God's heart? You know, a study came out this week. Some of you probably saw this. It's a study that asked Americans, does America have a responsibility to accept refugees? Anyone see this study? Do we as Americans have a responsibility to accept refugees? And it's important. Didn't say immigrants. Refugees. Refugees are people who have been forced out of their country because of natural disaster, famine, religious persecution, or some other kind of disaster or persecution. The question was, do we have a responsibility to help them? They asked all these different groups of Americans, Republicans, Democrats, different races, different religious groups. And you know, you know who was least likely to say that, yeah, we have a responsibility? You know what group of all the groups? It's white evangelicals. 25% said, yeah. 75%. Three out of four people who say, I love the Bible and I love me some Jesus said, no, it is not our responsibility to care for the most vulnerable people in the world. We are not responsible for them. This is what fired James up to write this book. He's writing to a church like the white evangelical church. You believe in Jesus? Really? You've heard the word? Really? Well, look what the word says. It says that God loves the foreigner residing among you. He loves to give them food and clothing. And yet you and your church are saying, not our problem. We're going to look out for our own, for me and mine, no one else. That's what James says. That's not not true religion. That's a joke. 
to claim to worship God, but to not aspire to have the heart of God. It's a deep incongruity that's not sustainable. Favoritism dishonors the image of God, defies the law of God, disregards the heart of God. And then lastly, for the believers here, in particular, favoritism denies the gospel of grace. Partiality, discriminating against people or, or moving particularly towards certain people and not others. It denies the gospel that we are all saved by the grace of God. Verse five, James says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he, he has promised to those who love him? You know, and I wrestled this week because the Bible's really clear. God shows no partiality, but then you read it and it's like, but he kind of seems to like the poor, you know? No partiality, but, but there's an awful lot about how God loves the poor. Well, how do we reconcile that? And I think one, the poor are easily forgotten the minority classes, the people without power, they're easily forgotten. And the Bible wants to make it clear God does not forget. And I think too, God likes to do dramatic works that reveal his glory and power. And that happens among the poor more than the rich. And rich people just by nature are more resistant to the gospel because the essence of getting into the kingdom of Jesus is saying, I have nothing to bring except for my sin. Poor people, it's like, yeah, I got nothing. Rich people are like, no, I got connections. I got power. I got influence. I got my 401k. And that's why in the New Testament, Christianity seems to move more powerfully among the poor. Thank goodness that there are rich people too. I want to be really clear. There are some people who take this teaching way too far and say, God only loves poor people. The Bible makes it clear that's not true. Like read the Old Testament, read the New Testament. Some of the great saints in the Old Testament, they were incredibly wealthy. Some of the great saints in the New Testament were wealthy. But as a whole, God moves through the poor because it's, and not just physically poor, the spiritually poor. Because it's through the poor that the gospel really flourishes. It's when we realize that even though we are dirt poor, Christ who was rich became poor so that we could become rich in him. It's only when we realize that we were spiritually poor, blind, naked, bloodied by the side of the road, had nothing to offer, and Jesus saved us. That's when we start to realize, oh, wait, salvation isn't about what we do, and our worth isn't contingent upon what we do. It's contingent upon the grace of God. And then we actually go and show that to other people. To show partiality is to deny the very grace of God in the gospel. And it's to deny that Jesus came to break down every barrier, the barrier of sin and judgment and wrath between us and the Father, the barriers between people groups. You know, the New Testament writers again and again talk about how Jesus came to tear down dividing walls. And again and again, you'll read things like, I'll give you two examples, Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is, neither, there is no male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Let me read one more. 1 Corinthians 12, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves are free. There's a second time Paul has said it. And remember, Paul is writing to people that have been deeply influenced by Aristotle. Saying, no, no, there are poor people and there are people born to be slaves and there are rich. There is a hierarchy that must be maintained. That was one of the mantras. You know how revolutionary this was for Paul to write this? No, no, no. There's not the rich and slaves. 
There's neither rich nor slave nor Jew nor Greek. All were made to drink of one spirit. What an image. So when it comes to issues like discrimination, whether it's on race, on class, on age, on gender, this isn't some socially progressive thing that anyone in the church is trying to push. It's a deeply biblical thing. And if you're willing to hear, like there's some deep conviction that comes. Maybe, let's take sexism. Maybe you were raised in a home that taught that men were more valuable than women. And women were great for certain things, but they're not, as, they're, not, they're not equal with men. I was raised in that kind of home, deeply ingrained. I have relatives that, it's like when, when a grandson is born, huge parties thrown and everyone goes to see him. When a granddaughter is born, send a card. It's like China. If you're raised in that place, you can get defensive or you can try to deny it. Or you can say what ways, maybe even subconscious ways, has that shaped, talking to men here, has that shaped how I see women? Maybe even some of the women need to hear this. And the gospel enables us to do it frees us. Last point, how can we be this type of community that's willing to examine what's going on in our heart? And the answer is the gospel, of course. The answer is that we are saved by grace. But there are many who believe the gospel and still struggle with this sin. I mean, 75% of white evangelicals, allegedly. I think for a lot of people, the gospel means I'm a sinner, Christ died, I'm forgiven. Well, that's true. There's so much more to the gospel. One, you're not just a sinner. Like you're hopeless and helpless and God saved you, like I emphasized. Two, you're not just forgiven. The gospel says that you're an heir of the kingdom. You're a child of God. You have access to the king. And you know, when James writes this, it's really pretty fascinating in verse one. He's gonna address this issue of discrimination and partiality in the church. Look at verse one. One more time. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He could have just stopped there, period. But instead, he gives this interesting name to Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. It's not wrong, but it's not a very common name for Jesus in the scriptures either. Like it's a interesting thing. Why would, why would James, before he writes about partiality, put this emphasis on glory? Well, think about it. What's going on at the heart level when we show partiality? Isn't it because we're seeking, we're seeking to preserve power or influence or wealth or glory? Isn't that what's going on? Like when we try to hold other people down, maintain the status quo or improve our situation, Aren't we chasing after this thing called glory? Why is it that Christians flip out if someone like Justin Bieber gives a hint that he might have read a Bible verse one time? But like we don't even mention it if our trash collector comes to faith. Isn't it because we think, man, if Justin Bieber became a Christian, 
think of how many people he could reach with the gospel and how he changed the world. As if, or let's take another example, Bill Gates. Like if Bill Gates, who basically owns everything uh, on the earth, you know, in one sense, if he became a Christian, think of what God could do through him as if God didn't own everything. As if he didn't own the cattle on a thousand hills. Isn't our, our partiality and favoritism so often tied to power? Because we just want power and we want power the way the world handles power, which is connections and knowing people. And we deny the fact that all power resides in Jesus Christ and that he's the king of glory and that the day's coming when he is going to sit down on his throne and everyone else is going to give up their seat. They're going to get on their knees and every tongue is going to confess Jesus is Lord. And that's why James is saying, don't show partiality because you know the king of glory. Don't spend your day chasing glory on this earth, which is fading. You know the king of glory. Honor and obey him. So I want to close. You know, it was Tim Keller once said, like, why do, you, why do you care about the opinion of the peasants when you have the love of the king? And I think, root level what's going on for so many of us when we're showing partiality is so we don't know we got the love of the king and we're so caught up in the affairs of the peasants. My prayer for us as a people is that we can model a different way and a better way in a culture that is so fragmented. The church of Jesus Christ can be a place, a beacon of hope that models a different way to be human, a different form of community. And so I want to ask you to play your part well. Be curious. Grace enables you to be curious. Who do you instinctively move towards? Among the people of God, who do you move away from? Who are you eager to talk to? Who are you not so eager to talk to? Be honest. And then confess, repent, and trust that Jesus Christ, when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's truth taught in the scriptures. It's also something that we reenact in a way every Sunday when we take part in the Lord's Supper, reminded that Jesus' body was broken for us, that his blood was shed for us, and that we are forgiven, and we have grace, and that we belong to the family in spite of our ongoing sin, that our sin doesn't kick us out of the family, but our sin does need to be addressed. And so communion is a great time for reflection. It's a time to examine yourself, it's time to come to the table and celebrate that Jesus died for all of our sins, even the worst of them. So if you're here and you're a believer, I encourage you to examine yourself, curiosity, to trust in the finished work of Jesus. If you're here and you're not a believer, I want you to know that Jesus died to bring you to God, to save you. I want to encourage you to trust in him. Let me pray.